So if you want, you can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Father, help us as we look at your word. Help us to be faithful. Help me to be clear, God. Help us to be stirred by what we read here that we might be changed. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the situation that we find ourselves as we continue to go through the book of Acts here is in Acts chapter 12, we see um, another martyr. And we see, we've seen the church begin to be persecuted. And as Robbie talked about last week, that the, um, the, the church of God has always spread um, through, through persecution or through blessing. And you see both of that in the book, book of Acts. You see both the persecuted church being spread and sent to places they would not normally have gone with a passion that they did not previously have to go and to share the good news as they discover more and more that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is our treasure. And then you also see other churches who have moments and and seasons of blessing, whether it be financial or people, that they bless others. And so we saw the church send out their very best in Barnabas and to give money um, to, to relieve suffering. And so we see all of this, and, and right here we see um, the, the church going through some more persecution. If you look in verse 1 of chapter 12, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And so the situation here now for the church is their beloved James, one of the apostles, has been arrested and killed. So amazing to me that James, who's so central in the Gospels, um, his death is just treated just like, and he was arrested and he died. And the church is grieving. And now Peter, um, King Herod, I'm not going to go into details about him, but um, he, was, uh, he pandered to the, the Jewish religious leaders. And um, he, was, he was a ruthless man. And so he sees that killing James pleased the, the Jewish leaders. And so he was like, all right, well, I'll just up the ante and I'm going to have Peter arrested with the plans of putting him to death. And the church is clearly grieving and scared in this time. They might feel in this moment like they are losing their grip. They, they just started worshiping the Messiah. They've had the joy of seeing the Messiah come, and now they have been born again. They've been indwelled by the Spirit. Think of all the miraculous things that they have seen, all the transformation. They're thinking like, man, there is revival happening, and now it looks as though the Roman government is going to just snuff it out. Because just by way of reminder, the the persecution um, is heating up at this point because up until this point, Christians, these followers of Jesus, were just seen as a sect of Judaism. And Jews were protected by Rome. There's kind of this live and let live idea. And so they they were like, well, we want to keep the peace. And so they had kind of this deal. And so as long as the Roman government saw these Christians as just a sect of Judaism, they were like, whatever, we're just going to leave them alone. But as soon as the Jewish leaders and authorities 
started calling them out and saying, no, no, they are not Jews. The Roman government looked at it and said, oh, well, then we can, we can snuff that out. And so it certainly feels like that is going to happen. It certainly feels, I'm sure, to the early church that what was this beautiful thing that was starting was going to be crushed by the mighty Roman government. And you think about it. We often look in Scripture and we wonder, okay, is that relevant to today? And do, we, um, do they face the same things that, that we face? And we sometimes get caught in this idea when we look around at our country and we panic and we have fear that, look, look what's happening to our schools, look what ha- what's happening to our communities, look what's happening in the government, look what ha- what's, what's happening um, in media and all these different things. And we get overwhelmed with this, like, well, this fear of like we're losing our grip, that the influence that, that maybe we've had as, as Christians in this country is we're losing that. And if we lose that, what, what could happen? But when you think about the things that we are worried about and what they were worried about, we are worried about the state of our schools and our laws and our land. They were worried that the government was just going to kill all the Christians and there would be none left. But God was not worried. And these are lessons that the early church would need to walk through time and time again. Spoiler alert, Christianity does not get wiped off the face of the earth. Herod does not kill all of the Christians. And in fact, Peter is going to be miraculously delivered. And what this should communicate to us today is a firm reminder that God works in all circumstances. That we can often think that Christianity is losing ground or the influence of Christ is becoming less. And we look around the world or maybe even at our own lives and we wonder, is is God losing this battle? He is not. One of the great lessons we learn in the book of Acts is that God is working in all circumstances, in all situations, and he is never limited by human opposition. As Paul says in Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul does not say many things work together. He doesn't say most things work together. He doesn't say uh, an above average amount of things work together. He says all things things work together for good. Both death of James and the deliverance of Peter work together for good. Both our joy and our sorrow, both our illnesses and our healings, he works all things. And if you believe that, If you believe that God's power in your life and through you, in you and through you and through in and through this church, if you believe that God works through all circumstances, that he is not dictated to by anything that man does, if you believe that, it will change the way that you and I respond to and interact with the world. Your confidence that God is working in all circumstances to bring about his good purposes will change the way that you respond in these times. And here's what it will produce. It will produce a humble confidence. We see this a lot in scripture. 
Because what we find is that as our confidence in God grows, so does our humility. It feels counterintuitive. It feels like the more confident we become, like the, the, the more bold and brazen we should become, the more brash we should become. But that's not what happens in the work of the Holy Spirit. That the more confident we become that God works all things together for good, we find that it produces not arrogance, not brashness, but humility. There are two faithful responses that we'll see here, and then one consequence. And these aren't the only faithful responses to this idea, to this change, that I believe that God is working all things together for good, but they are the two that we see here. The first one is the church prays. Right, so Christians are grieving the death of James. They are fearful for Peter. They were powerless to do anything about it. But what does it say they do? In, in verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And so when they are looking around and they feel like it's hopeless, they pray. And we talk about that, we give lip service to that when we talk about praying for our country, but I wonder, do we pray the way that they pray? When it says earnest prayer, that that word means like this crying out, this, this desperate cry. It is not something that gets tacked on to all of their plans of how they're gonna set Peter free. They don't pray, they don't say like, okay, we gotta get together, we gotta rescue Peter, and so we're gonna plan it together. All right, well, first we should probably pray. All right, dear God, help us to set him free. All right, now, what are our plans? How are we gonna do this? Where are we gonna go? All right, you guys are gonna go here, you're gonna do this, we're we're gonna storm the gates with this, and we're gonna, all right, and then, okay, we should probably, hey, God, bless all of our plans, amen. That's not how they pray. They prayed in desperation. They prayed in humility. They prayed with confused hearts and minds, grieving hearts. What they learned is that when they were weak, they were strong. We are not used to that. We're just not in this country. Most of us have never lived in a culture where you are a Christian from a position of true weakness where the government could just take away everything you have in a moment, where they come and arrest you, or where you might go and get baptized like we had baptisms a few weeks ago, and you might, because of your profession of Christ, might return to your home that Sunday afternoon to find it burned to the ground. We have not been in that position. And so it can feel weird to us. It can feel like, well, but can we have influence from a position of weakness? Yes. Because when we are weak, we are strong. You might think, what kind of nonsense statement is that? What kind of ridiculous statement is that? Well, it's a biblical one. Paul, when he asked God to deliver him from a thorn in his flesh, and we don't know if that was an illness or a person or a disability, God says no. And when Paul says, I cried out to God to deliver me from this, this is what God responded. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let me ask you, is that your response to weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities? Is it contentment? I tell you, it's not my first response. If I'm being insulted and going through hardships and calamities and facing all that, I, my first bent is not to think, wow, I am content. I feel really at peace right now, really content with this. Of course not. And God understands that. But what he wants to communicate to us is actually you should be because when you are weak, then you are strong. Notice that it's not just that God can work with it. Paul sees it as God has put this on him and that it is God's mercy and kindness that he is keeping him weak. Paul sees it as, man, I'm seeing all these incredible things happening. If God did not keep me humble and keep me weak, I would start to believe that I was the reason for all this, and I don't want that. And so he sees it as God's kindness. You think about calamities and weaknesses as God's kindness to you? Because we live in a culture where that is not typically the way we see those things. We typically see them as obstacles for God to work through us. What if they're actually God's kindnesses and mercies to you? Think about weaknesses you have. Disabilities, illnesses, lack, lack of skills, like social skills or speaking skills or lack of, of any, anything, ability to work or ability to contribute that you think is what's valuable to the world. What if those are actually kindnesses? Reminders that I cannot rely on my own strength. Reminders of my need for Christ, my need to cry out to him. Reminders that his power is made perfect in my weakness. It is made perfect, that's completed, it is completed in my weakness. Because it turns out that though human stuff, like the, the world battling against God does not diminish God, the only thing that diminishes the power of God in our lives is our insistence that we don't need it. Maybe you feel like you can't understand God's word because you don't read well. But I would say it's your inability to read well, or to not be, your inability to read well that makes you rely on God all the more and be that much more desperate when you open his word that he would give you wisdom and insight. Far more than the person who is a literature expert who can rely on their own strength to dissect what this means. Maybe you feel like you can't articulate the gospel as well as some people around you. But I say, it's your inability to speak that makes you rely desperately on the power of God when you have the opportunity to share. See, the enemy wants you to say, I'm weak, so I just need to let somebody else do this. This just isn't for me, which is kind of a half-truth because God says, you are weak, that's why I've called you to do it, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so the church is brought yet again to this place of desperation and they cry out with earnest prayer because they are weak. 
Church, if there's anything that we need to do right now in the culture is be reminded that a position of weakness is not something to be afraid of. To not be afraid of the apparent strength of those who might oppose the gospel. To not buy into the worldly economy of strength and power. But to remember that small things become big things. To remember that the kingdom doesn't work top down the way the world does. It works inside out. And that understanding should produce great confidence and lowly humility. We also see this not only when, as the church prays, but also as Peter sleeps. So the church is praying earnestly. Imagine like a prayer meeting. They're crying out to God. They're probably weeping and crying and, and pulling each other together and calling out and yelling to God. And while they're doing all that, what is Peter doing? Verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Peter's sleeping. And he's not just sleeping. We'll see in the next verse that the angel has to like kick him in the side to wake him up. It's like waking up a teenager. Like, hey, time to get up. But Peter is out cold. He's not strategizing. He probably prayed before he went to sleep. We don't see all those interactions, but I'm sure that he did. But he is sleeping, and not just sleeping, like sleeping like a baby. And why is that? Because his response is not because he doesn't think he's going to die. He believes he's going to die. We see that as he's rescued, and it takes him forever to realize what's actually going on. He saw what happened to James. He knows what awaits from him. He sleeps. Because he knows the kingdom does not depend on him. He knows that God is working. And that God has called him to rest. Peter experiences incredible deep peace that leads to rest. Because he does not carry burdens that are not his to carry. He heard Jesus say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Peter is experiencing that. Peter knows that the fate of Christianity is not on his shoulders. He knows he is called to be faithful in the moment, and in that moment, faithfulness looks like sleep. As some of you are carrying burdens of responsibility that are not yours to carry. Some of you are putting a weight on yourself, either for the salvation of a family member or a neighbor or for the transformation of a school or a community, and you're putting a burden of responsibility on your own shoulders that is not yours to carry, and it keeps you up at night. I'm not saying that a sense of responsibility for your neighbor and your school and your community is wrong. That's not the point. The point is that when we carry that to a place where we believe God cannot accomplish his work without me, that is not humility. That is the work of the enemy whispering that in our ears. I mean, think about Peter. If anybody had the right to feel like this is all on his shoulders, it's Peter. 
right? Because in Matthew 16, Jesus says to him, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If anybody had the right to feel like this is all on my shoulders, if I don't do this, then it's not going to happen. It's Peter. But Peter is at total peace. This man who had no peace before the resurrection, before he's indwelled by the Holy Spirit, now has peace. This man that before being indwelled by the Holy Spirit could not find rest, now he has found rest. He carried the burden before being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He carries the burden to keep Jesus alive. He believes like, no, Jesus, you're not going to go die. And then he draws a sword and tries to protect Jesus because we're not going to let that happen. And now he is at total peace in facing his own death. He sleeps, chained to two guards, and on a cold floor, he rests. Church, what, what circumstances could you be in that you could not rest? What possible thing is there that you would not be able to sleep knowing that God is in control? And not in some flippant way, like I'm sure he's doing something, but the belief that we are not to be anxious in anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He rests easy because he knows that whether he lives or dies, God will be glorified, and God will do his work. So whatever your situation, you can be confident that God is working and you can rest in him. Yes, work hard to be faithful and do the things that he's calling you to do. But when you've been faithful to him and done what you can do, rest easy. Sleep well. Our testimony is that we can do that. Our testimony is that we do not panic or do not fear that regardless if it is death or deliverance or poverty or prosperity or success or failure, our testimony is that Christ is our treasure and the kingdom is our home. And God invites you into the work. Share. We talk about mission all the time and sometimes I can get a little ahead of myself and I don't want to place burdens on us that are not ours to carry. But God invites us into his work to share in the joy of the harvest, not as slave labor. Or as the farmers in our room would probably say, family responsibilities for children. I mean, right, like when you're, when you're in a farm and you need everybody, the reason why the farmer needs helpers and needs everybody to pitch in is because he needs it because without those helpers, you can't accomplish all the things that have to be done. It is not so with God. He is doing all of the work, but in his kindness, he says to his children, come with me. I want you to take part in fruit that you didn't bring about. I want you to rejoice and take joy in the work that I'm doing that I'm going to let you be a part of. And this should both embolden us and humble us. The battle belongs to him, and he has already won. So rest easy. So God works, and I'll just summarize. Basically, the angel comes and kicks Peter and says, Get up, 
So Peter's like, doesn't know what's going on. Peter thinks that he's seeing a vision. He doesn't know that what's happening is, is really happening. I don't know how many sleepwalkers I have in here, but I have a history of that. So I really relate to Peter right now. I'd be like, I don't know if this is real or not, but I should probably do something about that bear that just broke into my house. You know, like things like that that go on in your mind. And so I'm sitting there thinking about that and looking at Peter and saying, man, that's probably what he's doing. He's like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I'm asleep or I'm awake or whatever, but an angel told me to get up, so I'm going to get up. And he starts walking with him. And then pretty soon he, he gets out and then the angel leaves him. And at that point... Peter realizes, oh, that actually happened. I'm free. And he runs to where the church is taking shelter. And when he gets there, by the way, they're all surprised, by the way. This is what's so fun about this. So this is a great encouragement to know that even great faith that we are called to doesn't mean that we don't have doubts. Peter isn't sure that he's actually being delivered from prison until it's really obvious to him. But then it leads to this ridiculous situation that Peter then goes and he's like, oh, okay, I've been delivered. And he runs to where the church, to the house of Mary, like in verse 12 there, he runs to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, just weird detail, okay, where many were gathered together and were praying. So he goes to where everybody was praying and earnestly crying out. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. You just picture this for a second? Peter is set free by an angel of the Lord. He runs to where the church is praying that he would be set free by an angel of the Lord. And a girl runs to the door and is like, ah, it's Peter, and then runs away. And Peter's like, what? Uh, I'm still outside. And she runs and tells the people. And of course, what is their response? Just, oh, come on. They are literally in the position. They are praying, God, do a miracle. Set Peter free. And this little girl runs up and says, Peter's outside. And they say, that's ridiculous. You're out of your mind. Don't distract us with that news. We're too busy praying that Peter would be set free. Whew, okay. We are not so different. Don't, don't bother me with stories of how God is changing people's lives. I'm busy praying that God would change people's lives. Don't bother me with stories about how people in our church have served faithfully and working with orphans and, and, and the poor and being in the schools. I'm too busy praying that God would transform our schools. Ah, it's happening. It's happening. And we are often the slowest ones to see it. And I think this should give us, again, a humble confidence. Confidence that God works even in spite of our unbelief, but also humility that even in our strongest moments of belief, we still struggle to believe. And God is kind and merciful to us. He is not dependent on our perfect faith to move mountains. He gives us faith. He moves mountains and he lets us see it. We are like small children who just get to look at it and go, wow. 
So take heart. Some of you have been fed with the lie that if you just believed enough, then this thing would go away. If you believed enough, then this cancer would go away. If you believed enough, then this person would come to Christ. If you believed enough, then this thing would change in our country. That is not what Scripture says. Scripture says that faith is a gift of God to us, and we respond with faith that he gives us and that he works. He is not a master that sits up there and says, well, if you had more faith, I'd do that for you. That is not a good father. He's the father who says, I know, I know you're struggling to believe, but look, take heart, be encouraged. Look, I, I'm doing it. We believe and we pray that God would help our unbelief. Their lack of confidence, by the way, in God. See what happens, produces, produces their lack of humility in responding to the little girl. They did not believe that what she was reporting could possibly be true. That is not humility. And it's because they did not have confidence that God was going to do what he, what he declared he was going to do. But seeing Peter and then coming and wrapping their arms around him, God is not sitting there going, I told you so. He's got his arms around them too, saying, look, look how much I love my children. The last thing that needs to just be pointed out, and I'll do it quickly, is not only does the church pray, Peter sleeps, but Herod dies. Verse 18, now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. No kidding. And after Herod searched for him and he did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. When people panic and feel out of control, they do harsh things. That is why, as Christians, we should never produce harshness and harsh responses because what it communicates is a lack of confidence that God is doing what he says he will do. Confidence in God produces humility, not going on murder sprees. And so Herod is angry then. And goes on and says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. So they're worshiping Herod. They're like, you are the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Yikes. The order of that sentence is very troubling to me. I'm not going to lie. But in a foreshadowing of things to come, this is how this matters. In a foreshadowing of things to come, Herod is judged on the spot. He takes the credit. He does the opposite of Peter. He believes the credit belongs to him. He believes his own press clippings. His confidence is founded in his own strength and his own wisdom. So he is arrogant and not humble, and God judges him. And that should produce a humble confidence in us that God will make all things right. And examples of judgment in Scripture should produce humility in us, not arrogance. I cannot stress this enough. When anyone preaches about judgment of God in arrogance, do not listen to them. 
because the judgment of God is awful. It is humbling. It is something that should make us all tremble. The idea that God will, when he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, that should make us cling to Jesus. Not to our own morality, not to our own works. It should not produce, when we see judgment happen in scripture, and when we see that, it should not produce any sense of vindication or self-righteousness in us. It should, it should bow us low. The righteousness of God's judgment should show us the unrighteousness of our own. Do you hear that? Seeing the righteousness of God's judgment should make our judgment look petty and silly. It should wipe smugness from our faces. Jesus Christ is returning to judge the living and the dead. And that includes you and me and everyone here. And it, he is not swayed and will not be swayed by smooth talking or well-articulated doctrine or memorized Bible verses or voting records or numbers of days serving in any place. He looks straight at our hearts and he listens the testimony of the Holy Spirit declaring that we belong to him. And that should make us tremble. And that's when it makes sense that it is only by the name of Jesus that we can be saved. That none of us can stand before God with our track record. The only way to escape judgment is to abide in the judge. Because standing for a holy God is terrifying unless we understand that that holy God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Unless that holy God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the mark of the church. And this is what we look at in this, that we should pray earnestly and call out that knowing that God's power is made perfect in our weakness, that we can rest knowing that he works and that he is going to make all things right. And all of that should give us more confidence in the cross and more humility about ourselves. This is the mark of the church, increasing confidence with increasing humility. This is what you find with older saints. So you get to 70, 80, 90, is those who have abided in Christ, they become more confident in Christ and more humble. And nothing should challenge that. Because despite all the efforts to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth, the church prays, Peter rests, and God works. And even when the nations rage, it says in verse 24, the word of God, but the word of God increased and multiplied. So your response today, maybe, maybe you need to 
be compelled to pray more earnestly, to cry out more desperately. Not as a way of proving to God how much you need him, but just a way of declaring to yourself your desperate need for him. Pray, and don't be afraid of your position of weakness. Pray in your weakness that his power be made perfect with that. Maybe you need to rest and let go of burdens that are not yours to carry. And believe that God is the one who works all things together for good, not you. Or maybe you need to be reminded of the coming judgment. Confident that God will make all things right so that you can let go, but also feeling that holy fear that turns you to repentance and to receiving the gift of life that is offered by Jesus. If that's you here this morning, I would encourage you, do not turn from that. Because church, if you are in Christ, whatever happens, do not be afraid of what is to come. Stay faithful, pray earnestly, and sleep easy. Let the work of God increase both your confidence and your humility, whatever may come to his glory. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need you to bring about these things in us. Because relying on our own strength, we do not grow in humility. Lord, but let us boast in our weaknesses. We would not be afraid of a position of weakness. That we would embrace it because we know that in our weakness, your power is made perfect. It is put on display. It is made complete so that people would see it. So God, we boast in the cross. We are confident that you are working. And so as we pray for our country, we are confident that you are working in the hearts of your followers to bring about transformation. As we pray for our community, we know that you are bringing about change in us so that we would be these trophies of grace, that we would display your goodness and your power. We pray, God, that you would help us to treasure Christ more and exalt the name of Jesus more and that we would not be interested in any of the credit and any of the glory but that we would that we would turn to you and we would say but for grace because we are doomed without your grace without receiving your righteousness in exchange for our sin because of your great kindness and your great mercy lord i pray that we would see whatever situation that we are facing as kindness from you, a, a constant reminder that we desperately need you and that only in you will we find this kind of peace, this kind of joy, this kind of confidence, and that will breed in us humility. Make us humble, Lord, so that we would worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.